Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In this week's programme, I'm chatting with Hong Kong rugby legend and ultramarathon runner Rob Naylor about how he gets through the long distances and what inspires him. And then... We'll also be taking a look back at when Rob represented Hong Kong in both the Rugby Sevens and Fifteens, and he was even temporarily part of the China team. On Friday evening, June the 5th, Australian Rob Naylor will be running around the peak circular walk. That's 3.5 kilometres, until he's up to 100 kilometres. I worked that out on the calculator. That's 28.57 times. He'll start at 6pm and reckons it will take him about 12 hours. Why, you say? Good question. When he's running up and down mountains, he struggles on the flat, boring bits. So, apart from the view, the peak walk is flat and boring. So this, for Rob, is as much a mental as a physical challenge and he's putting himself through it to raise funds for two foundations close to his heart. Now, running through the night, you have less heat to contend with than during the day and fewer people in your way. But I asked Rob if it takes a special kind of energy to get you through the wee hours. Actually, when you start in the daytime and go to the night, it's actually harder because you start in the day and sort of on a high. You go to the night and there's a bit of a lull, especially when you're going throughout the whole night. But definitely as the sun comes up, you get a renewed energy. It's, it's, it's quite a, it's a weird sensation, but you... You sort of, when you're running during the night, you're waiting for that first bit of sunlight and it gives you that sort of burst of energy. So that sort of was a part of my thinking as well. I didn't want to run all day and then, you know, go through the night. So, yeah, it definitely it definitely will help as I'm, as I'm finishing off. I'll be getting the first light and hopefully a bit of renewed energy. Now, you've completed over 20 ultramarathon races, ranging from 43 to 145 kilometres since 2011. So you've done these kinds of distances before. But there's a special mental challenge to this in the fact that it's just flat and boring. Exactly. I mean, most of the races I've done are all in the mountains. So there's obviously a lot of elevation. But this one, not a lot of elevation, just a lot of concrete <laughs> and pretty flat. I mean, there's one, there's one small bump in the, in the peak which is about 50 metres elevation, not even, not even that. So it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely a mental challenge just to the flat and monotonous nature of the, of the peak trail. So each round is 3.5 kilometres. Is anybody coming along with you? Yeah, so I've got Ali McClay, who's actually, I've known him for a few years. He was, he was also a rugby player. He's put his hand up to run as much of it as he can with me. So he's, he's hoping to run 100, but he's not sticking his neck out and saying he will you know, definitely do it. But, um, I mean, kudos to him. He's... He said he'll stick with me as long as he can, and if he can do the 100, he will. Yeah, so there's him, and then I've got a few other people throughout the night. But about 30 people have volunteered to, to come throughout the night between 6 and 6 or 8 in the morning. The graveyard shift was the hardest one to fill, so probably around about 1.30 to 5 a.m. is where it's going to be, we're going to hit sort of a, a mental challenge. It's just, it's just that time, like 60, 60 or K onwards, where it starts to get quite hard. So, yeah. um, But I've managed, I've managed to fill those spots, so uh, <laughs> hopefully I'll have someone to sort of keep up the spirits the whole way around. The circular walk on Victoria Peak 
is, not surprisingly, a walk that is a circular route. Despite the proximity to the city of Hong Kong, this is very much a walk for those who enjoy the outdoors, fresh air, walking and viewing the trees, shrubs and small wildlife that live on the peak. It's therefore also known sometimes as the tree walk, and it passes by many fine examples of native Hong Kong trees. Rob's run will start on Lugard Road. The road is named after Sir Frederick Lugard, governor of Hong Kong, from 1907 to 1912. Construction started in June 1913, and this is what the Public Works Department report said at the time. The road will be principally used as a promenade, a wonderful panoramic view of the city, harbour and surroundings being obtainable from it. Starting from Victoria Gap, the road contours the hillside below the Mount Austin Barracks, being practically level until it reaches a point below Bishop's Lodge, whence it continues westwards with a rising grade of 1 in 18 to the end of the first section. It is 8 feet in width and is generally cut out of the hillside. In some places, it has been necessary to construct retaining walls in order to avoid excessive cutting or to improve the alignment of the road. Construction was completed in March 1921, the total project cost being just over $88,000. Now, you've referred to the pain cave. Can you tell me about that? Yep. It's quite funny. I mean, you don't... For me, it's, my run is quite weird. I, anything up to six kilometres... I could give up any minute. Then after six till about 60, I'm okay. Then after 60, I'll sort of start to feel at the, the body starts to sort of try and overrule the mind. And you really start feeling every sort of every bit of ache and pain. Um, you mentally start to lose a little bit. Um, but then it's probably for me, it's about after that's about 15 or so kilometers more, a few or so an hour or an, a half, an hour and a half after that, that point where I really got to focus and try and push through it. But once you get through that, it's fine. It's just, it is actually. It's not, I guess it's not as hard as the wall in the marathon, but you do get to a place where you really start to go dark and, you know, I never want to do this again. This is horrible. Why am I doing it? I just want to give up. Um, but it's just a matter of, you know, mind over as a body and your mind. Sort of, you're just going to tell yourself, look, it's fine. This time tomorrow night, you'll be sitting in a bar having a beer. Sort of, it's just, it's just basically playing mind, mind games with yourself to get yourself through it. Now you're raising funds and asking for donations for two charities. One is Beyond Blue, the other, the Ben Kende Foundation. Beyond Blue is the mental awareness organisation from Australia. Now, for me, there's been a few there's been a few people in Hong Kong who have lost in the rugby community, specifically through suicide, and there's been other people I know who have you know struggled struggled mentally. I think it's going to be a big a big thing going forward in the next sort of few years, especially after this COVID you know 19 where people have been in isolation for so long. So that's a big thing for me, the, the mental awareness, making people aware of it. Just not so much only guys, but you know particularly in guys of it, we we seem to be very you know, pretend we're strong, we don't need to talk, but I, I just want to, you know, get it out there, get guys to start talking to people if they've, if they've, if they've got issues, don't be afraid to talk. And, and this Beyond Blue organisation, it does that. It's part of a, you know, a very big sort of mental health side of things in Australia. So that's, that's one. And then obviously the Ben Kendi Foundation, which is a foundation which is even closer to my heart, where Ben Kendi is an amazing guy. He's, he, he was an amazing young rugby player. Unfortunately, his rugby career was cut short by a spinal injury. Um, playing for Hong Kong under 20s, I think it was. But just the the inspiration I've drawn from Ben, he's he's such a fighter. He's he could have just you know pulled up stumps and gone right. That's it. I'm done. I've got my life over. But he's he's fought this. He's come back. He's now I think he's now a lawyer in Australia. So he's 
he's he's fought through those hard times. He's he's now set up the foundation to help other people in his situation, how to get their lives back on track. So yeah, he's an absolutely amazingly inspirational individual, and he's one that I sort of draw a lot of strength on, especially during this this run. Things that runner Rob Naylor won't see because he's doing it in the dark. Some examples of flora that Rob Naylor won't see along the peak circular walk because he's... Running it in the dark. Thank you. The paper mulberry is a deciduous shrub or tree. It's native to Asia, for example, China, Japan, Korea. It's used to make medicine and the roots can be used to make ropes. The sterculia. The sterculia is a flowering plant. The scientific name, Sterculia, actually comes from the Roman god Sterculia, who was the god of manure. This is due to the unpleasant aroma of the flowers. There's also the sweet viburnum. During spring, the branches are covered in small white blossoms of this plant. However, summer is the fruiting season. The purple fruit is known for its sweet taste. Due to this, it attracts many insects and birds. Now, the fact is you're going to be doing 100 kilometres around the peak. And as you say, there's the mental challenge of the fact that it's it's repeated and repeated and repeated. It's also a very hard surface. How do your knees cope? Not too bad. I mean, I've, I run in this fish uh, shoe called Hocker, which are a brand out of France. And they're very, they've got, they're very, they're known for their thick soles. So they've, they've got a lot of cushioning. So they're, they're a save, they've been a saviour for me in the last sort of 10 or so years that I've been running these races. But also, it, it just, it's part of the strength and conditioning as well that I do. I mean, I do a lot of, I do some gym work. Um, I've got a, you know, my own personal strength coach, um, who I used to play rugby with, a guy, Ed Haynes. He's worked with me a lot on, you know, getting my quads and my calves stronger so, and my hips so that I don't, so they can sort of absorb some of the strain. So a combination of those two things, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling okay. So fingers crossed I can feel okay for 100 kilometers. <laughs> now you um you don't actually use any music when i mean you do to train but when you're actually on one of these long ones you don't tend to listen to any music so do you just enjoy the silence sometimes it actually is the silence is actually quite nice and especially coming from a city like hong kong where there's always something happening around you it's quite noisy but you're also in a race you've normally got people around you so you talk to some people every now and again i'm not a big talker during these races i sort of keep to myself but every now and again it's nice to say hello to someone and you know give them a nod and say you know well done but yeah it's just funny i just don't know why i just never have this urge to pull out my music and, and listen to it um, maybe it's just because i'm always running in surroundings that are a bit different to what i miss a living in so um, i'm just enjoying what's around me um, i mean in the europe race it was quite funny because it was the sound of cowbells the whole time, which got a bit annoying towards the end. <laughs> just, you, know. you didn't mix it up with the Tour de France. <laughs> no. So it's, it's quite funny because it's just, it's, it's really interesting. There's the whole, the, the European trail running sort of scene is different to here. But yeah, I mean, I think you've just got to draw from your surroundings and you take inspiration from that while you're running as well. I mean, it's draw from your local surroundings or your surroundings, what you're running in. And, and that sort of consumes a lot of time. And next thing you know, you're at a checkpoint and you've got, you know, 30 k's to go and then, all of a sudden you finish. So, yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what I think about, but, yeah, definitely drawing for more from my, the surroundings around you rather than, than sort of thinking about what's, what's going on in your mind. 
So these are your sort of running experiences. And as I said earlier, you've completed over 20 ultra marathon races, ranging from 43 to 145 kilometres. So that's basically in Europe and here. Where else have you been? I've done one in, uh, two in Malaysia, sorry. Two in Malaysia. Uh, the ones in Malaysia, one was in Penang and one was in uh, Borneo. The other ones I've done in Japan, I've attempted to do the UTMF, um, which I've unfortunately had had to pull out the first time at about 128 kilometres. And the second time we got it, we got cancelled due to a typhoon. I was actually in the, the Kimberley race in Australia where they had the bushfires and, and those people were quite badly burnt. So that's not a fond memory. Um, but I've done, yeah, done, done a few there. Um, and then mainly throughout Asia. It's, we're so lucky in Hong Kong, right? We're so close. Asia's on our doorstep, so it's very easy to travel around and do races. So most of them are in Asia, but as you said, I've been lucky enough to do the, to do the ones in Europe as well, which are, which are amazing. that runner Rob Neller won't see because he's doing it in the dark. Birds that have made the peak circular walk their home include the black kite and osprey. Others include the blue magpie and the yellow-crested cockatoo. The blue magpie is a species of bird in the crow family. It's around 65 centimetres long. The blue magpie's diet mainly consists of small animals and invertebrates. The yellow-crested cockatoo can be found on the peak circular walk. Its diet consists of berries, seeds and nuts. While the yellow-crested cockatoo is critically endangered, it thrives in Hong Kong due to its introduced population. The palace's squirrel is Hong Kong's only squirrel. It has a grey and brown coat that fades into a red and slightly pepper orange on the underside. You may be able to see one in a tree or climbing a fence. One thing that Rob Naylor probably hopes he doesn't see are the wild boar. Now, let's turn to your rugby. You say that um, you started playing rugby at the age of three. So do you actually come from a rugby family? Yeah, so I mean, I guess from Australia, so you, you normally do a winter sport and then a summer sport. So rugby was my winter sport. My dad, my dad was a rugby player. See, I just got into a young age. I think I was a bit of a, a bit of a rat bag as a kid. I was quite high so I think my parents were pretty happy to put me into something that would take, it would take, let them sort of, or take me off their hands for a few hours. So rugby was rugby was the choice. Now, if you started at age three, was there a special small sort of rugby ball? No, well, back then, funnily enough, it was it was. Nothing like it is these days. It was we, we wore boots. We uh, had a normal ball. It was just yeah. And I quite frequently picked on the ball and ran the wrong way, but <laughs> it was a start. Um, but no, everything was funny because seeing it back then was way different to what it is now. It's just there it was full contact and everything. So yeah, it was it was it was full noise straight away for, for me at a young age. I mean, I noticed after COVID nineteen that already rugby league has already started up again in Australia. So what what did you play throughout your career? Was it just rugby union or also rugby league? No, I played primarily rugby union. I played a bit of league at school, but it was sort of rugby union was my choice. I played a bit of soccer as well, but I got stuck in goal because I kept handling the ball. So rugby, <laughs> union, was, rugby union was the, was, the, was, the, was the way forward for me. 
I'm talking to Rob Naylor. He's about to take on a huge challenge next Friday evening, starting off at 6pm up at Lugard Road, around the peak again and again to raise funds for two charities, Beyond Blue and the Ben Kende Foundation. Going back to your rugby, of course, you come here at the age of 21. You represented Hong Kong a number of times, and that was 15s or 7s or both? I was lucky enough to play both. Being a smaller guy and probably a bit more nimble than some of the big fellas, I was lucky enough to, to adapt to both games, um, both 7s and 15s, for I think from about 1997 through to 2007, so about 10 years all up. And you were always a scrum half? Scrum half or fly half. Yeah, I was, um, I was uh, the guy who did a lot of talking and then a lot of hiding behind the big guys. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, now tell me about um, at the Rugby Sevens. I mean, obviously that must have been a tremendous high to be a part of that. But how, when you're on the pitch, do you sort of take away the crowd and just focus on the job in hand? Well, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing atmosphere. Just the, the noise and the, the reception you get as you run out of the tunnel while you're playing is, is something that I'll never forget and it's something you can't really put into words unless you've experienced But I was always told to embrace it. I mean, you don't try and... I'd never tried to put it out of my mind. I drew from the fact that we were hometown favourites. Everyone was cheering for us. No matter who we played, people were still behind us. So I, you know, took it in. I was one of those players who was loved to hear people cheering for, for the home team and I didn't try to put it out of my mind. And to be honest, if I said I did put it out of my mind, I'd be lying. It's just, it was something that I just drew from. I loved it. I just... It was just, I got caught up in the atmosphere and it was, it was great um, and something I'll, I'll, I'll cherish the rest of my life. And which years did you represent Hong Kong? I played in the sevens in 2002 and, and in, the, in the World Cup in 2005, so just two. I, I, was, I missed out a few times and I was in, the, in the, the reserve team they have and I, I played for China one year. But yeah, for, for, Hong Kong, for Hong Kong twice, two times more than a lot of people ever do and it, it's just an amazing experience. You played for China for one year. Well, I was I was in the reserve team. So what happens is, if, if a team loses more than two players, they were allowed to draw players from this reserve this reserve squad. And yeah, China China needed the player, so I kitted up for China. So it was interesting, but I didn't didn't get any time on the pitch. But I kitted up for them and warmed up, and yeah, it was just it was, it was interesting being the only uh, Caucasian in, in in the Chinese team. Probably that one of the first guys, or you know, Caucasians to ever suit up in a in a Chinese national rugby kit. Would you say that rugby is really sort of spreading in China? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, for a couple of years, I'll put about five or six years ago, it really went crazy. Obviously, when it got, when it got into the world, uh, when it got into the Olympics, sorry, it was very popular. I mean, now it's still, it's still widely played. And I guess the fact that it's a, an Olympic sport, it'll never lose, lose that interest. And I, I would say in the next sort of 10, 15 years, there, there will be another big growth spurt in China. It's just they've got they've just got the athletes there who can adapt to it, and they've got the population. So I can't see any reason why it wouldn't gain momentum. 
you were Hong Kong Rugby Coach of the Year in the 2011-12 to 12 season. So you, you finished rugby probably at about the age of 35, as we can see, of course, that you're carrying, carrying on some major endurance sport since then in your running. But uh, sticking with the rugby, so you switch over from the pitch and into the coaching side. So was that for yep. men, women, boys, girls? So I coached, I ended up, my end of my playing career was with Hong Kong Football Club. So when I finished, I wanted to stay involved. I didn't know how, but um, I was lucky enough to be able to, my next year, I, sort of was a, I played, but also did some coaching. And then I took over the head coach role of football club. I think it was 2010, 11 season. And yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting way of seeing the game. It was something that I'd never dealt with before, but it, it was a lot harder than I thought. It actually took it was more time-consuming being a coach than actually was a player. Coaching for me was a learning experience. I had to learn to deal with the personalities of different players. You know what what they needed to get themselves up for a game, or you know if they needed a tap on the back or a hug or something. So that was that was for me was the hardest part of the coaching was learning the players' personalities. Were you a demanding coach? I don't think so. I think I was sort of a coach who, because I, I played with a lot of the guys that I coached. I knew what they wanted out of a coach. So I just sort of, I learned from what I didn't like being as, as a player from a coach and then just took it from there. And, and to be honest, it was just, if you earn the respect of the players, they'll play for you or they'll play for each other and you don't really have to do much. And that's, that's sort of the, the, the philosophy I took into coaching. I enjoyed it, um, but it was, it was only a short-lived sort of coaching career because I knew I had to make a choice between going down my, my career path or, or staying with rugby coaching. So I, I sort of stepped away from rugby coaching after about four years, I think it was. How do you think COVID-19 is now going to have an impact on the sport? I mean, I'm now I've seen recently they're trying to, to change some rules within that, to speed the game up and take away from not so many scrums and some of the contact situations. But to be honest, the contact sport is going to be very difficult to ever change the fact that it's a contact sport. Um, I think the main changes are going to be in the way the, people, the, the supporters um, at the moment, obviously, they get. I think most sports are going to start up without having a crowd. But, and it's just going to be interesting to see how they, that support comes back when they're allowed to. So I don't think you can do much really in a sport apart from, you know, if you maybe check every few weeks on, on, on different diseases or what have you. But I really think it's, it's a very difficult thing in a contact sport. It's, you're always going to be, you know, tackling guys, coming into contact with sweat, with blood. It's just, it's one of those things that's very difficult, I think, to, to, um, to change the, the way the game's played. In terms of Hong Kong, how do you see the future of Hong Kong rugby? It's, it's a tough one, you know, because we're in a, in a situation where the Hong Kong Sevens could be compromised. And if, if it doesn't go ahead in October, I mean, that's a big part of the Hong Kong funding taken out of their pool. So it will be, it, I think it'll, a lot will depend on the Sevens. I mean, we've done a lot in the last sort of 10 or 15 years to get to where we are. And I really hope that Hong Kong rugby can stay as it is. The club rugby, I think, may go back to sort of more of what it was like when I was playing, where you'll have more people coming into Hong Kong working and playing rugby at the same time rather than just coming solely as professional rugby players. I just don't think we can sustain that type of player in Hong Kong anymore, or for the time being anyway. So, But to be honest, if you've got the right guys that come in who are educated and get jobs and are still at a, at a ripe age to play rugby, I, I don't think it will detract from, from the quality of rugby that we, we have here. 
one of the reasons that you said that you're doing this 100 uh, kilometres is one, the, the sort of men, real mental health challenge of, of these long, flat bits, repetitive, and, and uh, getting through that um, and through particularly the wee hours of the night to, to deal with that mentally. So it, you're seeing that as probably, I would say, the, the psychological challenges up there with the physical one. But um, you've also said that uh, any number of people, have you, you got fed up or bored with the number of perhaps drink, drinking challenges or egg white consumption. So while yeah. you're on air, what's the worst one that you've been challenged with and what's the worst one that you've taken up? Okay, well, I'm not really one to take up any challenges, so I haven't actually done them yet. So this was sort of my throwback at the guys who have nominated me. But the worst one was which is the one that a lot of guys are doing for mental health awareness in Australia. It's, it's, um, it was, I think you had to do, a, you had to do a, a raw egg white, a shot of sugar, a shot of a spirit, and then finish it with a, a pint of beer. So that, to me, I had no problem doing the sugar, the spirit, or the, or the beer. It was the egg white that I really couldn't, take, uh, you know, couldn't allow myself to do because I just know that that's the first one off the rank, and I would have been sick straight away. So that's the one that's, sort of, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, right, no more nominations. What can I do to, to sort of still give these guys what they want, or you know, you know, raise awareness for these for the, for the mental health, but not have to do these horrible challenges? So, I mean, and there's no way I was going to do 25 push-ups for 25 days and put myself on camera <laughs> for 25 days. No one needs to see me doing push-ups 25 push-ups per day for 25 days. So that was that was yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't really like posting stuff much on Facebook or, or Instagram. I sort of keep to myself. But, um, but yeah, I just, that was, no one needs to see me sweating and struggling to do 25 push-ups. So I thought I'd let them see me run 100 k on the feet. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit extreme. I won't eat an egg white. Instead, I'll... Um... I'll run 100k, but um, I'm so glad you are because you're raising funds for the Beyond Blue and the Ben Kende Foundation. So if people want to know more about what you're doing or if they would like to donate to your 100-kilometre challenge next Friday evening, kicking off at 6pm, where can they find you to make that donation? It's a funny one because I've gone through a fundraising platform. But if they want to donate, they can just simply go to um, the Ben Kende Foundation. You can... That you can if just Google Ben Kennedy Foundation, you can just donate directly to the charity or beyondblue.org.au and donate straight to there. Um, but alternatively, it's on my Facebook page, which is just Rob Naylor. If you want to search me and look for a guy running, there's, there's, there's a link on there which goes to the, the actual the fundraising platform. Um, and what I'm going to do on that fundraising platform, any money that's raised, I'll split that half and half will go to Ben Kennedy Foundation and half will go to Beyond Blue. Well done, sir. Well, all the best of, of luck for next Friday. Thanks very much. Where it began I can't begin to know it But then I know it's growing strong it Wasn't the spring of the strings Spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along Touching hands Reaching out to Lord Touching me Touching you Sweet Caroline Your time never seemed so
They don't seem so lonely We fill it up with only two And when I hurt It runs off my shoulders How can I hurt when holding you Touching wall Reaching out My thanks to Hong Kong rugby player and runner Rob Naylor. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.